to be with you, and thanks for braving the snow to fellowship with us. We need to be together as the body of Christ. I'm especially glad to be here. I drove my daughter Jackie to Seattle to college this week. On the way back on Friday, they closed the freeway right in front of me. So I called up my wife Jeannie and said, well, you better get working on your sermon. (laughs) So she prayed very fervently. (laughs) And uh, I ended up taking an alternative route through the middle of Oregon and uh, got to go through a lot of mountain passes, but made it back. So I'm I'm glad to be here. When I was uh, an intern getting my training, I had the opportunity to go on a trip around the world, ministry trip, and I was in Pakistan. Pakistan, as you may, you may already know, is 95% Muslim, so it's a challenging place to be. And I was young, naive, and I had the opportunity to do ministry. So early one morning, 6 a.m., I was teaching a group of rural pastors that had walked and ridden bikes from all over to come together um, on this morning. And I was teaching this group and talking about the enemies we face as Christians and how they in particular face the oppression and the atmosphere, the culture of Islam in their culture and how Satan uses that. And it's part of their struggle as Christians, part of their battle. Well, as I said that, I was speaking through an interpreter and there was a rumble through the crowd. And I thought, I wonder what that's about. But I finished speaking and then I asked my interpreter, I said, why did they react so much when I said that? And they said, well, we believe Islam is an instrument of Satan. But we would never, ever state it in a public meeting. Because if we did and it was reported, we would disappear and never be heard from again. And I went... Oh, (laughs) in the famous words of Dorothy, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. (laughs) And I began to realize, you know, I don't really know how to live in this culture. And I need to figure it out so I know how to survive here in Pakistan. Well, in the book of Romans, Paul has been talking about the incredible grace of God. How God, by faith, has provided a way to receive his life, his righteousness, so that we can live under grace rather than under law. And he begins in chapter 1 with the whole theme. Let me just read you verses 16 and 17, the theme of his whole book. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. He goes on to describe how all of us have sinned. And there's all of us are under sin. We can't escape that. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 But then he says, but... God has provided a new way, righteousness that comes by faith, by the grace of God. And all we have to do is believe and receive the gift of God. And we have life with him. And we're under grace so that nothing can separate us from his love. But I think Paul in this section we're in, Romans 5 through 8, is 
saying, but this is a whole new world for us. You see, we're not used to living in this culture and we need to learn how to live under this grace of God because it's a whole new way to live. We're not used to it and we need to learn how to deal with it. So he deals with a number of things and in chapter 6, he's dealing with a couple of common misconceptions when you teach grace. That nothing can separate us from God's love. No matter how we behave, ultimately it doesn't matter in our relationship with God. When you teach grace, that can lead to some misconceptions. And in the first part of chapter 6, he asks the question, well, shall we continue in sin so that grace might increase? He has just said at the end of chapter 5, he says, you know what? Grace is so amazing that when you sin, grace superabounds. It overwhelms it. It's so much greater when you're in the kingdom of God. When you commit your life to Christ, by faith, you receive that grace and you're totally free in Him. There is no condemnation, as he'll go on to say. But if that's true, then he asks this question, well, why not just live a lifestyle of sin? God's going to forgive me anyway, right? His answer to that in the first part of chapter 6, and Rod taught on this a few weeks ago before Christmas, was... If you're a true believer, if you've been united with Christ, you've died with Him and risen with Him, you have His life in you, and there's no way you can live a lifestyle of continuous sin because you've been joined to Him. He's in you, and He will keep drawing you back to Himself. This is who you are. So He encourages us, so yield to God, follow Him, because that's who you are. It's your new identity. He implies that if you don't, walk with God, but you continue to walk in sin, if you're really a believer, then you're really being a hypocrite. Because a hypocrite is, any, is pretending to be something you're not. But if you're in Christ, you're one that has received his righteousness and you want to walk with, walk with him. So to continue in sin would just be crazy. It's totally against who you are. It's totally against your identity. So that was his answer in the first part of chapter 6. But now he asks another question that I think is one we can relate to. He says this at the beginning of verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? In other words, what he's saying here is he's saying, well, if you're under grace, and grace is so wonderful and overwhelming, and and it doesn't separate you from God, no matter what your behavior is, well, why not just give in to sin even just once? Why not give in to that temptation? Because temptation can be pretty attractive. You know, sin can look pretty good and it can kind of feel good for a while. So why not give in to it? God will forgive me anyway. And I think many of us think this way at times. You know, if grace is really true, then why not sin? God will forgive me, right? And the truth is, yes, he will forgive you. But... We need to understand that Paul has an answer for that question. But first he says this, shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? We, to really understand this passage, we need to talk a little bit about what being under law versus under grace is. You see, we live in a world that is a world of law. We're used to law. We are used to getting a response based on how we perform. That's what law is. Law is the very air that we breathe in this world. You get treated according to how you perform, right? 
If you perform well in school, you get good grades. If you don't, you get bad grades. At work, if you perform your job well, you might get that promotion or you'll get certain strokes or encouragement or whatever. But if you perform poorly, you won't get the promotion. And in fact, you might lose your job. In relationships, if you are kind and good and loving, you'll probably have a lot of friends. If you're mean and cruel and selfish, you probably won't have friends. You see, we live in a world that is based on that. It's based on law. You get good for good, and you get bad for bad. You get good for good, and you get bad for bad. That's the water we swim in. That's our culture that we live in. So when we come to Christ, we tend to transfer that over. And we think that God is just like the world around us. That if I perform well, God will bless me. If I don't perform well, then God's going to be angry, frustrated with me. At least he'll disapprove and he will not bless me. And so we tend to bring that into the world, just like I brought my attitudes into Pakistan and you get into trouble because that's not the culture. You see, when we're under grace, it's very different. We are not under law. We are under grace. The truth is, when we perform poorly, it does not separate us from God if you're in Christ. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't spank you. <laughs> he doesn't give you a time out. He loves you just as much no matter how you perform. Otherwise, it's not grace. But see, this is a different culture than we're used to. And we need to learn to understand it and learn to live under that. Paul says the truth is we're not under law, we're under grace, and nothing we do can change his love for us. Under grace, you get good for bad. We don't do everything right. We sin. We don't deserve his love, but we get good as a gift, no matter how we perform. That's the amazing culture of grace that he offers us. No matter what I do, the blood of Jesus covers it. So I want to show you a chart just to explain a little more about the difference between being under law and being under grace. Because again, you need to understand this if you're going to understand this passage. If you're under law, this is what happens. Your focus is going to be my behavior, your behavior. You see, if you're under law, then the point is, I better keep my act. I better do it right. I better do the right thing. So your focus is on your behavior. I better make sure that I'm towing the line that I'm keeping the law, that I'm doing the right thing. And so you tend to be very centered on your own behavior. Am I doing okay? Your goal under the law is to keep the rules, whatever they are. And you might have this idea of what the rules are in your church or from the scriptures you've read or whatever, but you have this idea that, okay, I've got to keep the rules and that's my goal. So I'm going to focus on my behavior and how I'm doing in relation to the rules. The experience you have, what you tend to experience under the law, is pressure, demands, a lot of shoulds. You should be doing this. You should be doing that. And so it's this pressured life that I've got to pull it off. I've got to make sure I'm doing it right. And the results tend to be either shame or guilt or self-righteousness. Either the sense that 
boy, when I look at my life and look at the law, I'm just not making it. And you become overwhelmed with shame and guilt and failure. I'm not pulling it off. Or maybe you've narrowed the rules enough so that it's a nice little box and you're keeping all those rules. So you become really proud and self-righteous and have this sense of, look how well I'm doing. I'm glad I'm not like those people who are screwing up. No, I'm doing it right. See, that's what it's like to live under the law. And it's the natural way to live because we've all come out of the world and this is the way the world functions. I've lived a good portion of my Christian life under law. And I think most of us have. But under grace, to live under grace is very different. Your focus is not my behavior because your behavior doesn't affect your relationship with God. So your focus is on God and his love. Your focus is on him and how much he cares for you. And Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. You're amazing. Thank you that you love me so much. And you delight in him and you're getting to know him more and more. Your goal is not to keep the rules, but it's to stay close to Jesus. Lord, I want to know you more. As Paul said, I press on that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. He wants to know him and that becomes the goal to stay close to him. What you experience is a life of forgiveness and peace because, yeah, you know you don't do everything right, but you know his forgiveness of you is immediate. So you experience forgiveness in a sense that I'm okay with God. Yeah, I don't do it all right, but I'm okay with God. Now you also, and you could add this to the list, you also experience conviction. By the power of the Spirit, the Spirit says, you know, this area isn't quite right in your life. You need to submit that to the Lord. So there is conviction. But it's not this overwhelming sense of failure. I blew it and I better get my act together. It's, wow, I, yeah, I, I need to submit this to you, Lord. Thank you that you're still there and you love me and you're for me. And the results then are a sense of growth, a sense of joy, sense of closeness to God and a sense of being used by God, usefulness to him. Lord, you're using me for your kingdom. That's being under grace versus being under law. As St. Augustine said, grace is love God and do what you please. Do whatever, do whatever you want. You know, love him, seek him, pursue him, and do whatever you want because he will guide your desires, he will lead you. That's what grace is all about. There's freedom to be his. Chuck Swindoll described grace this way. Nothing to prove, nothing to lose. I really like that. It's worth meditating on. Nothing to prove, nothing to lose. You see, under law, you're always trying to prove yourself. There's pressure. But under grace, there's nothing to prove. I'm accepted by him. I'm loved by him. I I don't have to prove anything to anybody. And there's nothing to lose. I've got it all in Christ. So no matter what gets taken away from me, I'm okay. See, there's nothing to lose. Nothing to prove. Nothing to lose. So if grace is that wonderful, if being under grace is that marvelous and free, and I'm forgiven, and it doesn't separate me from God, then this question really makes sense. Paul, if you're teaching that grace is that incredible and we're under grace, then why not sin? God's going to forgive me. That is a good question. 
And Paul answers that question because he knows that we all get tempted at times, don't we? I mean, temptation is part of this world. We get tempted to give in to anger, to say harsh words. You know, someone's hurt us, so, so we get tempted to give in to it. We get tempted when we get spam on, on our computer to, to follow it up to pornography or whatever might be that, that it might lead to. We're tempted to sit down and eat a whole box of candy because we just feel like we deserve it because we're just mad. We're tempted to hold on to resentment and not forgive somebody else because it just feels good to hold on to that. We're tempted to give in to lust and desire in whatever form Satan uses to attack you. And it's going to look a little different for you than it is for me, but all of us get tempted. And the temptation can look really good and feel really attractive and, man, I just want to give in to this. So why not if it can't change God's love? I've talked to many believers who think this way, and I've struggled with this. Grace is that great. Why not give in to just this one sin? It won't hurt anybody else. I'll just give in to it. Well, Paul gives two very clear answers in this passage at the end of chapter 6, why we should not give in to sin. He says this, starting, uh, finishing verse 15, Should we sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. He says, you should not give in to sin because sin is always enslaving. It's always enslaving. Get Paul's perspective here. His point is that we are always dependent people. We always submit to a master. We like to think as human beings that I can, I can choose to be independent of anybody. I, I can determine my own existence. I'm an island to myself, etc. But his point is that's not true. You're always enslaved to someone. Always. Or something. You have no choice but to be dependent, to be enslaved. And you're enslaved to whatever you choose to submit to. None of us is truly, truly free. I like the way Bob Dylan put it in a song that he wrote during his Christian phase in the 1980s. But it's a very insightful song. It's called, You Gotta Serve Somebody. And he says, You may be a state trooper, You might be a young Turk. You may be the head of some big TV network. You may be rich or poor. You may be blind or lame. You may be living in another country under another name. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. You may be a construction worker working on a home. You may be living in a mansion or you might live in a dome. You might own guns and you might even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord. You might even own banks. But you've got to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you've got to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. 
You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Now, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. Very insightful, I think, and it's so true. And that's exactly what Paul's getting at here. We all are serving somebody. And there's only two choices of whom we will serve. And as you read through this passage, he says, on the one side, you're either serving sin or impurity or wickedness, he says, or on the other side, you're serving obedience, righteousness, God. You're either serving God or ultimately serving Satan, serving sin, one or the other. And he says, whatever you choose to yield to becomes your master, becomes your master. So he talks about being a slave of sin. What does that look like? What does it mean to be a slave of sin? Well, he says here in verse 17 that though you used to be slaves to sin, in other words, he's saying everybody who's an unbeliever is a slave of sin. They don't have a choice. Believers do. But unbelievers do not have a choice. They're all enslaved to sin. It doesn't mean that we couldn't do good things. It doesn't mean that we can't do, uh, be kind or whatever. But it means that in your heart of hearts, you're always acting out of self-interest, out of self-dependence. You're enslaved to your own desires, urges, lusts, and ultimately you're acting separately from God. That's our life as unbelievers. But what Paul's getting at is, okay, as Christians, we have a choice. We were united with Christ. We were enslaved to him. But we have a choice to instead yield ourselves to sin. We can do that if we choose to. And one of the best examples I know of in Scripture is King David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. King David, remember, was a man after God's own heart. Loved God, wrote the Psalms, so many of them, and just a heart for God. But listen to what happened. Chapter 11, 2 Samuel. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Get that? When the kings are supposed to be at war, David stayed home. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, it's really late afternoon, one late afternoon, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. David's in bed in the late afternoon. (laughs) He walks around the palace, the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. And you know the story. She became pregnant. He had to try to cover it up. He had to lie. He got Uriah back, um, tried to work it out. That didn't work out. He didn't sleep with her. So now he's got to cover it up and he ends up murdering Uriah. Now think about this. It began with David simply reneging on his responsibility to be leading his army to war. And then he's being lazy in the afternoon in bed. So he gives in to 
just laziness, not wanting to be responsible. He gets lazy. He sees a woman. He gives into lust. Lust gets conceived into an affair. The affair leads to murder. This is a wonderful picture of how sin is enslaving. Once you yield to it, it takes you down a path that you don't want to go. And you would have never imagined that you would have gone. Because that's the way sin is. It is enslaving. Ray Stedman gives this example. A man said to me one day, I told what I thought was a little white lie. I thought that would handle the matter. But you know, I found out I had to tell 42 other lies. I counted them before I finally woke up to what I was doing and admitted the whole thing and got out from under it. We can't tell just one lie. We're not in control of the events. If we choose to tell one lie before we know it, we have to tell another and another and another. You see, sin is enslaving. Once you yield to it, once you give in to it, you find yourself suddenly having to commit more sin to deal with the consequences and deal with what's happening. And it takes you down a road you do not want to go. Sometimes we think, well, if I just look at this internet pornography or if I just give in to this, it won't affect anybody else. It'll just affect me. If I just eat this box of chocolates or whatever. But then you find that you've got to cover that up and you have shame and you've got to lie about that and it affects your relationships with other people because you're hiding and so you can't be truthful with them and it just carries on and on and on. Paul's point is that sin is always enslaving. It always takes you where you don't want to go. If you yield to something like flirting with someone at work, how many times does this happen? How many times have I heard this story where you just kind of begin to get to know someone at work or in your neighbor or whatever and, and you begin to build some intimacy and you know it's wrong and you know you shouldn't do it but it just feels good and, and you're a little ticked at your spouse anyway and so you kind of give into it and, and you find that you're building intimacy and then you start having secret rendezvous and you start sleeping together. It leads to an affair and greater destruction down the road and you think, how did I end up here? Sin is enslaving, and when you yield to it, it takes you down a path where you don't want to go. And it's hard to go back once you've made that choice to make sin your master. The modern psychological word for this is addiction. Addiction. Paul's point is all of us have addictive personalities. We all do. We're all dependent, every one of us, and it might look different for you than for me, but we all have those tendencies. And that's part of being in a, uh, in a fallen world because we don't know how to fully depend on Jesus all the time. So we struggle with that. I read recently that 95% of the people who try meth become addicted to it. 95%. Well, I think Paul's point is that 100% of the people who try sin <laughs> become enslaved become addicted to it. That's the way sin is. How many times have I come home tired and, you know, I just think, man, I've had a long day and I just need time for myself. So I give in to that sense of, you know, I just need time for me. And I know there's going to be demands when I walk in the door from Jeannie or the kids or whatever, but I've already decided, I've already yielded to, I'm going to be selfish. So when the demands come, then I begin to react and get angry and I say harsh words that I regret later and, 
and it just carries on and causes more damage. That's the way sin is. It's enslaving. Now, you can break the control. You can repent, obviously. We can repent and turn back to the Lord, but, but it's harder as time goes on. And it's hard to break the control. It's a lot easier to never give in to it in the first place. Paul says, instead, be a slave of righteousness, not a slave of sin. Verse 19, I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to, as an unbeliever, offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to an ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer the parts of your body in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. So now become a slave of righteousness. What does that look like? Well, as you get a temptation and, and, and you're struggling and, you, you know, should I give in to this or not? You say, no, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to give in to him. So you trust him. You do what's right. Then suddenly you find it weakens temptation and you find that God is beginning to use you in some new ways. You find that you're finding more freedom in your life, freedom to love others, to do good, to care for him and his kingdom. And you feel a freedom in your relationship with God and a joy there. I have a friend who loves refugees and who loves spending time with them and teaching them English and reaching out and giving them food and all kinds of things to share the love of Christ with them. I think if you ask him, why, why do you do this? I'm not sure he could answer. I, I, you know, I just feel like it's what God wants me to do and I like doing it. Love God and do what you want. You see, when you submit to him, when you yield to him, suddenly you have a freedom in your life and it becomes a joy to serve and follow him. So Paul's argument is don't give in to sin. It will enslave you. It will take, down, take you down a path you don't want to go. Instead, be enslaved to righteousness. Yield to God. That's a good reason, I think, not to give in to the temptation, isn't it? But he gives us another one, not just because sin is enslaving, should we not give into it, but secondly, because sin always pays its wages. It always has consequences. It always, as Paul says, leads to death. The word he uses is fruit. It always bears fruit. Verse 21, what fruit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. Whether you submit to righteousness or sin, they both bear fruit in your life. There's consequences, there's results in your life. And he says sin always produces death. You can't avoid it. We tend to think, if, if I give in to this little sin, it's not a big deal, it won't affect anybody else, you know, I'll just indulge because I just want to give in to it. It'll feel good. It won't hurt anyone else. That's a lie. It will hurt you and it will hurt others because it always does. Even private sins lead to shame, frustration, hiding, broken relationships. Sin, now get this, this is grace, okay? Sin will not separate us from God no matter what we do. That's the truth of grace. 
But when we give in to sin, willingly give in to it, the temptation, it does cause consequences in our relationship with ourself and our relationship with others. That's the death he's talking about. That's spiritual death. It causes broken relationships, hiding, shame, within ourselves and in our relationships with others as well. The woman I know who was kind of lonely in her marriage, struggling a little bit in her relationship with her husband. There was some distance there. He was struggling in some ways. I knew them quite well. And um, she, in her loneliness, chose to just kind of give in to starting writing an old high school fling on the Internet, emailing him back and forth. And their intimacy began to grow. You know, it felt good, and and she was lonely, and she could justify it very easily. Her husband wasn't there for her. Plenty of reason to do it. And so as she gave into it, more and more the intimacy began to grow until finally she was more and more disgusted with her husband and her marriage until she finally filed for divorce, broke up the marriage. Three kids that are struggling and angry and hurt. There's division. There's brokenness all because she chose to give in to that temptation that she knew was wrong. Sin always leads to death. Now, for Adam and Eve, it led to physical death, so we all experience that, but it also leads to this kind of brokenness in relationships and brokenness in our own hearts, like fruit in a, in a bowl that one of, the, one of them is rotten and, and you see how it begins to spread and the rottenness spreads through it. That's what sin does. You give into it in one area and then it just begins to affect other things in your life. That's the fruit of sin. But notice he says, righteousness has fruit too. It has consequences. When you choose to yield to God and say, God, boy, I want to give in to this temptation, but I'm going to yield to you instead. He says the fruit is holiness. Christ-likeness, and eternal life. Eternal life. A holiness where you're growing and you begin to see Jesus live his life more and more through you as you make that choice to yield to him. He lives more and more through you. And then in verse 23, he says this, and he ends the section this way, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus Christ. Our Lord. You see, He wants us to experience that life in Him. And many of us think of eternal life as something, you know, floating on clouds. It's future. It's, it's out there. Someday we'll get it. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus Himself defined eternal life this way. He said, and this is eternal life, John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is a relationship with Him. So we can experience eternal life right now. And the more we yield to Him, the more we experience a closeness to Him and a joy in relationship with Him and an intimacy with Him. And Paul so longs for us to experience that eternal life now that he says, yield to God, be enslaved to God so that you can experience holiness, sanctification, and the eternal life that you have, a growing relationship with Jesus. It's interesting, this last verse, 
for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. You realize what it's saying? It's saying that the only thing you can earn in your spiritual life is death. You can choose to earn that. Sin always pays its wages. If you yield to it, you can earn death. It'll pay you. (laughs) You'll get the wages whether you want them or not. But what Jesus offers you is a free gift. You yield to him and suddenly you find yourself experiencing eternal life, experiencing joy, freedom, encouragement, being loved, forgiveness when you fail. And we do all fail. Greater sense of repentance. As I look back and look at my life, I just think, wow, God, so much has changed in my life. You freed me from things that I used to just struggle with so much. And I still have a long ways to go, but I've tasted of your eternal life. And it hasn't been because I've worked hard to get rid of things in my life. That never worked for me. It's only where I've learned to live under grace and receive the free gift of eternal life that suddenly I begin to experience the freedom that he longs for us to have. So Paul's teaching us to live under grace. He loves us freely. And if grace is so awesome that even sin can't separate us from God's love, why not sin? His answer is twofold. Because sin enslaves, it always enslaves. And it always leads to death. It always has consequences. It won't mess up our relationship with God, but our experience in life will be more painful and more of a struggle if we choose to indulge in temptation to give in to sin. But I'm really struck that Paul's answer is not, you better not sin because God will be mad at you. It'll separate you from God. I was taught that early in my Christian life. If you sin, it'll separate you from God. And you'll have to work your way back into relationship with Him. That's a lie, folks. The truth is nothing can separate you from His love. And Paul's going to go on and repeat that and repeat that and repeat that in the chapters to come. But there is good reason not to sin. Because our experience in this life will be more painful, more full of shame, more full of frustration, brokenness. And I don't think any of us want that, do we? So let's live under grace. Let's receive the free gift and let's yield ourselves as slaves to God rather than as slaves to to sin. Let's enjoy our forgiveness in Christ. And when we do sin, let's receive his forgiveness. But let's learn to walk under grace, not under law. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you offer us eternal life as a free gift. And we confess that law is very appealing to us. Sin is appealing to us. And Lord, too often we we give in to those things. But thank you that you provided a whole different culture, a culture of grace. Teach us, Lord, to live under grace, enjoying your forgiveness, yielding to you, and letting your eternal life flow through us by the power of your Spirit. Make us people that reflect you in ever-increasing ways, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.